0: So the giving of the law, uh, like I said in the prayer, this is really a uh, a very prevalent topic in every church all the time uh, because of how we interact with it and our thoughts about it. Um, so I'm not going to stand here and say that that I have all the answers, but obviously the Scripture does and. And my job is just to uh, try to relay that as best I can by uh, the Spirit of God. For those of you who desire an outline, if you're like me, you, you have to section things off in your mind. The outline is, is uh, kind of simple, right? Three, three, three things we're going to look at. Uh, the giving of the law is the first section, and then we're going to look at the law itself. We're going to look at the commandments and then we're going to look at the, uh, the design of the law and the fulfillment of the law. So the giving of the law of Moses, the design of the law of Moses and the fulfillment of the law of Moses. So I'll start by just talking a little bit about the background uh, and then we'll look at the commandments, look at the scene because I think the scene is critical to understanding the essence of the law. So the background. The the chosen people of Israel, they are assembled at the base of, of Mount Sinai. The year has started. This is the first year of the nation. I believe this is the third month. But they are at Mount Sinai to receive what would be God's first And only engagement of a nation in a national covenant with national laws for this uh, particular nation where God becomes the governor, if you will. In other words, this is the establishment of the theocracy where God himself is saying, I am your Lord, I am your governor, and these are my requirements. This is how you are to live with respect to that information. Now, the Lord says throughout the Old Testament, uh, he reminds the Israelites of this very, very important point. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says, You only to the nation, you only have I chosen among all the families on the earth. And then in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be the people of his own possession. Out of all the peoples on the earth, the Lord chose the nation Israel. So, we, you've gone through chapter 19 and you recall where the, the, the Mount Sinai narrative begins there. The nation arrives at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, speaks to the Lord... In fact, Moses is back to a familiar place. He first met the Lord at this place, and he's back at this place again, which, by the way, is, is a fulfillment of a prophecy that the Lord told Moses would, in fact, happen you know, after he returned to, uh, to Egypt. So God now gives Moses words to give the people. Moses rushes down, relays the word to the people in chapter 19 of Exodus, and then we find these words in verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses brings that information back uh, to the Lord. So the response of the people was very, very necessary, critically necessary, because they are establishing a covenant with God and the covenant is bilateral it's two-way they have a responsibility and the Lord God obviously shares what his responsibility is now this is unlike the Abrahamic covenant which we're going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant was unilateral in other words Abraham had to do nothing nothing was required from Abraham for this covenant to reach its fulfillment Nothing at all. He received the promise from the Lord, and the Lord would, in fact, fulfill that promise. But the Mosaic Covenant, once again, it's bilateral and binding on both parties. Binding on God and binding on the nation. So for the nation to receive all that the Lord is promising them in the Mosaic Covenant, they're required to keep certain uh Mandates that the Lord laid down. Now, the form of the covenant that they're entering, it's important to understand that it's nothing new to the nation. Like, the Lord doesn't tell Moses, hey, I want you to explain to them what this covenant is all about. No, the people were very familiar with this type of covenant. It was, it was very prevalent in the world at that time. And essentially, you're talking about the uh, suzerain vassal covenant or treaty where you have a lord he promises a people safety, land and all of that the suzerain and the vassal their responsibility is to show loyalty and in some places tribute taxation and they could have only one suzerain to have more than one would be treasonous so the lord Identifies as the suzerain and the nation as the, uh, the vassal. And delivering Israel from Egypt and entering into this covenant, God proclaimed to the people that he would be their Lord, he would be their father, and they would be his people. We talked about that. And of course, the expectation is that the people would be loyal to their only suzerain. And that's why all through the Old Testament, you, talk, you hear the Lord talking about the adulterous nature of the nation when they turned away from him. All of this is wrapped up in the covenant, and the people know this. They know this quite well. Concurrent with this Mosaic covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And we talked about God promising Abraham what he'll do. And God delivering with that promise, consistent with, you know, the unilateral nature of a covenant. But it's critical to understand that this Mosaic covenant isn't setting aside the Abrahamic covenant at all. It's not nullifying it. It's not replacing it. Not setting it aside. And so, Genesis 20, verse 1. God introduced himself as Yahweh, he says, your God. And then he says this, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The earth, he says, is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So obviously, everything belongs to the Lord and everyone is subject to the Lord. But this is different. He's now pulling out of the earth this one nation and he's." entering into this relationship with this one nation even though all the nations of the world are equally bound to the Lord and equally subject to his rules, his regulations, subject to worshiping him in the way in which he deems appropriate. The Lord promised Abraham this very thing that the nation would come out of the loins of Abraham himself. Now, any nation, I want you to think about this, any nation since the start of nations, right? Any nation who thinks itself as having this kind of relationship with the Lord totally underestimates what's happening at Mount Sinai. Because it's not a question of a nation deciding, Lord, we're yours. It's a question of the Lord deciding, I want you to be my nation. And he's only decided that once in the history of the world, and he'll never do it again. That's the uniqueness of what's happening at the foot of the mountain. Uh, Psalm 147, 19 and 20 says this. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes, and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. And as for his ordinances, they do not know them. This is incredibly unique. Now, let's talk about the commandments. So, Ten Commandments are the Ten Words. After God introduces himself, and a short recap of how he delivered them, the Lord now goes into the covenant and the covenant obligations, which is summarized in the ten, uh, Ten Commandments. These were not laws of legal, in a legal sense, for they carried no penalties. Rather, they were principles on which the nation's laws would rest. The commandments are called apodictic laws. An apodictic law is a standard, a normative, a universal principle Principles upon which casuistic or case laws are built. Okay, here's what I mean. So, the Ten Commandments don't have an if-then clause. In other words, do not steal. Well, what if I do? It doesn't answer that. The casuistic laws answer that. The Ten Commandments lay out the foundation for all the case laws... All of those case laws that begin in Exodus 21 and forward through uh, Deuteronomy. So the casuistic laws, if a man does this, this is what will happen. These are the application, if you will, of the apodictic laws, the Ten Commandments. And that's critical, and we'll see why that is critical as we move forward. So the application, the application of The commandments, the apodictic laws, are found in all of the casuistic casuistic laws. Here's an example, Exodus 21, 12. The 10th commandment, one of the commandments is, you shall not murder. Here's an application, Exodus 21, 12. Whoever strikes a man dead shall surely be put to death. You have the if-then. If you strike a man dead, then you're going to be put to death. These are case laws. And we know this because that's our country. Our country works within the, 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 our legal system has uh, case laws as its nature. It doesn't say do not speed. It tells you what will happen if you speed. Here's another. Do not commit adultery. Leviticus 20 A man who commits adultery with another's wife, a man who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's the application of the apodictic universal ultimate standard, do not murder. And then there is do not steal, when a man gives his neighbor money or items to keep, but... They are stolen from the man's house. If the thief is found, he shall repay double. Exodus chapter 22. So that's the expression of the, the, the uh, apodictic laws, the Ten Commandments. So you can't, you can't separate the Ten Commandments from all of those casuistic laws that begin in Exodus chapter 21 forward. The nation spent about 11 months at the base of Mount Sinai. All of what's taking place from this point through Deuteronomy happens right there at Mount Sinai. And the Lord is issuing all of these laws that would direct worship, that would direct interaction between people. All of this is happening. Now, when you think about how the Lord summarized the law, you get a sense of what the Ten Commandments do for all of those casuistic laws, however many there are, right? The Lord said this, love God, love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor on these two law hangs all the law and the prophets. So here's what the Lord has done. He has summarized the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments have to do with God, right? Have no other God, no graven image. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Then you have the Sabbath. And then the other six deal with people's interaction, your neighbor. So the Lord summarized the Ten Commandments in saying, love God, love your neighbor, fulfilled. And the Lord summarized all of those casuistic laws in the Ten Commandments. These three things, God, the Sabbath, and these six things, your neighbor. You cannot, once again, you cannot take the Ten Commandments, separate them out from the casuistic laws, and have some understanding of what took place at Mount Sinai. It is a package. All of it goes together. You take the summary without the wide broadness of the casuistic laws and you don't understand the summary and you may misapply, if you will, the summary. Now the scene, let's move to the scene. Here's why the scene is important. The scene communicates the nature of the law. It's critical to understand what the law was all about and really get the sense of what God was doing and you get that. In the scene, the scene is very purposeful in the way in which the Lord couched the giving of the law. The writer of Hebrews gives us commentary on what took place. I want you to listen to this and and just think about you being an Israelite at the foot of the mountain and being told these things and and sensing this. Right? It's it's like being in a uh, a uh, simulator and your heartbeat starts beating because you're you're just feeling the impact of what the realness would be like so let me take you into a simulator i want you to think about this hebrews 12 for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched so the writer of hebrews he is comparing the abrahamic covenant the new covenant with the old covenant He's comparing it. And, of course, he's elevating the promise, the new covenant. He's elevating it, and he is really explaining the old covenant, the the Mosaic law and the old covenant. So he is saying, listen, you've not come to this place where you're told, don't touch the mountain. Let me stop for a second. You've gone through Exodus 19. You've gone through... Genesis 15, let's go there. You've gone through Genesis 15, and you've seen what took place with the creation of the Abrahamic covenant. It was very peaceful, very, very peaceful. In fact, on one occasion, the Lord God, in the form of a person, eats with Abraham, very comfortable, non-threatening, all was well. When it comes to the giving of the law, all ain't well, and it can't be well. It's not supposed to be well. So the writer of the Hebrews wants them to know that it wasn't well. Listen to this then. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched in a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words would sound was such that those who heard begged, begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. There's no peace in that at all. And Moses' commentary helps us understand what God was relaying through all of that. His untouchableness, the sheer frightening scene, the, 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 uh, the ominous view, all of this had purpose. And Moses summarizes that purpose in a verse that Nick actually read this morning. Moses said to the people in verse 20, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him might remain with you. In order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you do not sin. So that you do not sin. The law was meant to scare people straight. I remember years ago, there was this this documentary where they took uh, juvenile to prison and they tried to literally scare out of them any intent to do wrong. And a lot of people were like, well, that doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work for all. And it's not meant to be all-consuming. But... It does place a level of fear. Any legal system has that. What would happen if you remove the law that says, um, let's just speeding. Let's say the law, drive as fast as you want. No one would be restrained anymore by the law that says, drive the speed limit. So the law was put in place to restrain. We'll talk about that more. But fear. The Lord wanted them to fear him, and he wanted that fear to keep them from committing and violating the laws. Do you know the first application of the law, of the casuistic law? The first application recorded, if I'm correct, is of a guy on the Sabbath gathering sticks. He's gathering firewood. The people rush in, and they told on him. They came to Moses, and they said, Moses, here's what's happening. Moses is thinking, okay, let's go to the Lord. Find out what we ought to do. Remember what the penalty was? Stone him. And do you understand that all of those stoning were public? They were meant to be a deterrent to crime. The commandments, the scene, all of it is meant to be a deterrent to crime. So that brings us to the design of the law, because that's what we're getting into. So it, it's kind of what's happening with the law. Now, this section of the outline, it could be a series. I, there's so much here. I was talking to Hans about just the flow of, of what I thought at that time would be the sermon, that there's no way to cover it all. Because there's, there's so many nuances that you need to flesh out that I don't have time to. But I'll hit some really high point, some high summary, so that um, I believe it'll set in our minds just, okay, that's why the Lord gave the law. And if you already know that, uh, then we'll just enhance that. This has been one of the most fruitful study I've done in a long, long time. Because what I realized was I had my impression of the law, I had my impression of what it's all about, and then I studied it. And it changed some of those impressions. So, like I said, this section can go on and on. To begin with, in Pauline fashion, Paul poses a question to the churches of Galatia, which, of course, is a question for all of us and all churches around the world, reading Galatians. Here's the question. Why then the law? Why then the law? I think the Lord must have been preparing me to preach this because I've been on that question since I read it some 25, 26 years ago. It's like the best question you can ask because inherent in a question are suppositions, right? And then the answer settles it all. Because if you have a question and you ask it and answer it, and in Pauline fashion, that's what he does. He asks the question, and then he lays out the answer, sealed. And the question, typically with the Apostle Paul, the question that he asks is a question that he is anticipating that his audience has. And this is one of those questions. Why then the law? Why is it needed? Like, why is the law needed if such and such is true? Okay? So the such and such that's true, we might want to take a look at it. In Galatians, and I'll just kind of walk you through the chapter until we get to verse 19. In the first five verses, Paul laid down a series of statements. And here are the statements. The first statement is that the law is insufficient to save, I don't think we'll argue with that. The second statement is that the law is, is insufficient to sanctify. And by sanctify, I mean growing a believer, growing anyone. The law is insufficient to save. The law is insufficient uh, to sanctify. Okay, so the Lord cannot bring salvation, and the law cannot bring salvation. Christian maturity. It cannot because it wasn't designed for that purpose. And so Paul really lays it out. In fact, he said to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians who bewitched you. Now listen, he's not calling them names. He doesn't do that. He's describing their actions as being foolish. In other words, it's non-thinking. It's incredible that they should be thinking now that the law saves. And then he says this, after beginning with the Spirit, well, like, like, did, did God, did, how did you come to salvation? Did God work miracles in you and that because of the observance of the law? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? That's a given, right? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to achieve your goal through human effort? Well, what is the goal? The goal is growth. The the goal is not salvation. You're already begun with the Spirit. You're already saved. Are you trying to reach forward in your Christian walk and gain a greater appreciation of God and gain a greater knowledge, a greater walk? Walk and look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trying to achieve that through the keeping of the law? And he he calls them foolish because that's what they were being taught to do. And he says, no. So, If the law cannot help one become a believer, and if the law cannot help one grow as a believer, why do we have the law? See, the question makes no sense unless you understand that there are some assumptions about the law, and he needs to clarify those assumptions. And those assumptions were the things I just said, right? And then in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Paul shows that Salvation comes to both Gentiles and Jews in the same way that it came to Abraham. Abraham is the prototype of how a person is saved. Before the law, during the law, and after the law, God saves the same by grace through faith. Always the same. The law didn't change that. Abraham is the prototype, and that's why the Apostle Paul reaches back and pulls Abraham in as the example of how God saves. And what's beautiful about the salvation of Abraham with respect to the law is that Abraham was saved prior to the law. We'll get into that a little bit more in a second. But if, if salvation comes by the law... You simply exclude then the Gentiles, because they never had the law. If salvation comes by the law, the Gentiles cannot be saved. Here's how Paul captures that in Galatians 3, 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you preach the gospel to Abraham before the law. Paul really settles this in Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, why is Paul saying that? He's saying that, once again, because if you're saved by the law, the Gentiles can't be saved. Here's how he puts it. Let me finish verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith is one. We're only talking about one God. We're only talking about one way of salvation. If you pull the law in as the Galatians were being taught, If you pull the law in as a means of salvation, you are then eliminating the Gentiles who did not have the law. So having established that through the promise is how one is saved, Paul concludes that the Mosaic covenant or the law did not nullify the promise that came before the law. So he says this in Galatians 3, 17 and 18. What I'm saying is this the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance is based on law it is no longer based on a promise but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise so paul makes it clear that the promise was made on better terms. And I assume that, you know, like I said earlier, you've you've gone through uh, Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham, in establishing this covenant with God, did something that was very practical. It was a human way of establishing a covenant, right? Like now, when we establish, uh, we might have, uh, you know, maybe a signature with a witness, a seal, some way of saying this is a legitimate agreement between us. Well, they didn't do it like that. What they did was they took animals and they cut them in two, just a, a bloody mess, if you will. But you all have gone through that, right? And you make a path. And the two parties pass through the animals and what they're declaring is, If I do not keep my end of the bargain, let what happened to these animals happen to me. So Abraham, in making this covenant with the Lord, really, his only part was setting out the animals. Because what happened after he did that? He fell asleep. He fell into a deep, deep sleep. And the scripture tells us that a smoking pot went through. That's God himself. God is making Certain that in, in, the mind of, in the heart and mind of Abraham that this will happen, Abraham. The writer of the Hebrews, he gives a really great commentary on that, that parting of the animals. He says this. This is another favorite part of Scripture as well for me. He says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, the Scripture says, Abraham received what was promised. Now, just so we connect this with human covenants, So people understand exactly what's happening. Like The Lord is not creating the process of, of, of covenanting with anyone. He's simply using what's there and elevating it to his supreme purpose. So the writer then says this, Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. I mean, we wish it was that simple, right? But that's, that's what he said. It just puts an end to all arguments, right? And listen to this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very clear to the ears of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Two unchangeable things. A promise and an oath. And it's impossible for God to lie. But notice why he did this. God did so. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very sure. Here's why. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Every believer's encouragement from his salvation does not come from the actions of the believer. It comes from the action of the sovereign God. And that's not something someone talk, can talk us into. That's an establishment Being in the Word of God, walking with God, and having that assurance happen. He did it so that we might be complete in Him and know that. Fulfillment of the promise, once again, is unilateral. It's guaranteed it will happen. So the law cannot save, the law cannot mature. The law did not nullify or replace the promise. And if this is true, and of course it is true, why then the law? Now you understand the question again. Why then the law? If all of that is true, and it is true that the law cannot accomplish any of these things, then the question is, well, Paul, why then the law? He answers the question. It is was added because of transgressions. Paul says it was added, right? Because of transgressions. God, now, he's been saving people before the law, during the law, after the law, still saving people. So, since Adam, people have been saved by the grace of God. And the law helps to flush that out. What I mean is, I I read, you've probably read, Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. So the the tendency is to think that there was something about Enoch that caused him to walk with God. Well, no, because the law proves that no human being ever can gain favor with God through human effort. So the law takes me all the way back to Adam. And the law says to me, well, you know what? Adam was saved by grace. Guess what? We know that. Nobody preached to Adam. Nobody. There was nobody to preach to Adam because Eve couldn't, right? They were on the same flight, right? They took the same flight. So no one preached to Adam, and but they were saved because they're saved by grace through faith. What about Noah? Who preached to Noah? Noah. Who preached to Abraham? Who preached to Seth? Who preached? You understand that in our day, there's given a pattern for salvation where we preach the gospel and the word of God is the continuity from Adam to now, the word of God, whatever God says. But you do understand that those people didn't go to God because someone preached to them. God went to Abraham. He was an Ur of the Chaldeans serving false gods. God went to him. That's how people are saved. God went to Noah. That's how people are saved. So we come into this phase of the law, and we start changing all of that because there's this, this uh, misinterpretation of the purpose of the law. He's still saving people the same way he saved Adam, by grace through faith. They were all saved by the law and no one ever preached. And they never, ever heard a single word of the Mosaic Law. Not even Abraham never heard a single word of the Mosaic Law. But then it stands to reason that if the law doesn't save and the law doesn't sanctify and the law didn't nullify the promise, then it's not essential that Abraham, Adam, Eve, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Methuselah. It's not essential that they hear the Mosaic law to be saved. No one preached to these people. Salvation has always been the same. Now, once again, God was saving and maturing people to a greater walk in him apart from the law, before the law, during the law, after the law. Paul said it was added. And we get it, right? It was added at a point in time. It wasn't there prior to that. It was added, and he tells us it was added because of transgression. And like I said, this is equivalent to saying, why did they add speed limits? They add speed limits because of speeders. Why do you add a law, do not kill? Do not kill because people kill. Why why do you have any law? You have any law because they're lawbreakers, and I'm not, and I shouldn't say they. Like everyone since Adam has been a lawbreaker, and so laws come in to hedge. But none of our laws, now think about it. There's not a law on the books in our legislative system that causes people to grow. You don't grow because you don't speed. You shouldn't speed, right? Like, like you. You don't grow for not doing what you're supposed to not do. And you don't grow by doing what you should do. That's the nature of law. That's the nature of that, of that pattern, which we'll look at in a second. So the, the Mosaic, Mosaic law, it did its work. And the work of the Mosaic law, because of transgression, is to bring about condemnation. Now, how, many, how, many, how often do you think of that when you think about the law? It didn't come to bless. It came to condemn. Can you imagine Moses and Abraham having a conversation? Moses, you just condemn folks. Abraham, you know what? I bless folks. And you see the distinction all through the New Testament. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't mix the two because then you don't understand fully what grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ means. And that element is what Christian growth is all about. It's really apprehending what that means and letting that settle our souls and letting that give us the kind of joy that's supernatural but over here the law that came through moses only only condemnation i skipped one section and here's the condemnation part in galatians chapter 3 and that said i want to say 10 through 18 and i want to read verse 10 Because this is the sense of the law. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. For a believer to think that they are bound by God to keep the law... And what? Let me say it this way. First of all, I don't know what it means when, when we say we're under the law. What does that mean? Roosevelt, you can't kill. I don't need a law to tell me I can't kill. What do you mean, bound by, by the law? I, no one has ever explained that to me. What does it mean to be under law? And I, I quickly say, well, you understand, the law was given to Israel. You understand that the law was not given to the Gentiles. And you do understand that the law condemns. And the reason it condemns is because you cannot do what the law requires. You can't. It's impossible. Moses says, all the things written in the book, a man who practices these things must live by them. We don't want to live by them. We want to live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is not progressive. You can't say, well, you know, um, I I love the Lord with 95% of my heart. I mean, even if that were possible. But the point is, the law doesn't say that. The law doesn't say that 95% is sufficient. The law doesn't work in terms of percentages. It's all or nothing. That's how it works, right? And so, condemnation is the rule of law when you're looking at the law. Jesus emphasized to the scribes and Pharisees that the law does not simply apply to the external, right? Because the Pharisees were, oh, no, 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 we don't kill. But then Jesus says, even if you say to your brother, you fool, you are subject to the fires of hell. Jesus came not to get people to follow the law because they can't. Jesus came to chase people to him. And so when he started talking about how the law is not external, it's internal, and these people are saying, oh, I've never killed anyone. And the Lord Jesus says, whoa, here's what the law says. If you say to your brother, you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Because Jesus is saying, you may not complete the action, but it's a heart issue, right? And everybody fails that, and that's the point. And that's why you have this guy with a tax collector or or with a Pharisee beating his chest. Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you have the tax collector. Lord, I I thank you. I'm not like that guy. I tithe. I do this and I do that. And, of course, he did those things. But he did it to a very insufficient level to gain approval from God. Here's some statements about the law, and then we'll start winding down. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 9. The law is a ministry of death. The law is a ministry of condemnation. Romans 4.15, the law brings about wrath. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Romans 7.13, through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Galatians 3.19, back to that question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression. Transgression. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been given. You notice the phrase until the seed? So it was added at a point in time and it ended at a point in time. It was added until. It was added because of transgressions until the seed of the woman to whom the promise was given. And you understand that when God gave that promise to Abraham, it wasn't just to Abraham. He said, and to his seed. He didn't say seeds. He said seed, and that's one. That's Christ himself. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the promise. All, you know this, all of the promises of God are yes in Christ because he is the fulfillment ...of all of the promises of the Lord God. He is included in that Abrahamic covenant. The law was put into effect then... ...only until the seed of the woman should come. And obviously, we're not saying that his birth simply is the coming. It's his life and his death. And there you have in him the fulfillment of the law which he said he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. So let's look at that, the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, the complete. Now think about the ceremonial system. All of the ceremonial system that was made necessary because of the Apodictic, the Ten Commandments, that was made necessary because of the casuistic, all of those laws, all of them, are, they find their place in Christ. The ceremonial system requires, the law requires, let me back up, the law requires a ceremonial system. In other words, when you violate, what do you do? The Lord tells them, you bring an animal sacrifice, all of the ceremonial system was connected to the law, the Ten Commandments and the, uh, the uh, casuistic laws. The Lord's coming himself was in complete fulfillment of all that the prophets said about him and all that was pictured in the law. Even as far back as Genesis 3.15 where he talked about the seed of the woman will crush his head, meaning the seed of Satan, if you will, or Satan himself, way back then. All of that is being fulfilled as the Lord himself comes. Now, what did the law require? Death. If you violated those laws that required death, you collected stone on the Sabbath, we're going to kill you, and you were killed. Death. The Lord Jesus then died. He died in obedience to the Father. He fulfilled the law, which requires death, by dying. And that's what Paul means when he says he became a curse for us. And in becoming a curse, he took it away. Verse 13 of Genesis 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and why did he do this? In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing through Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, back to the promise, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Isaiah 56 says, All of us as sheep has gone astray and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Christ is the only man ever who lives perfectly, perfectly in light of the will of God expressed through the law of God, satisfying those demands on our behalf. Let me tell you what that sounds like. You're a Christian. You walk up to an unbeliever. You say to the unbeliever, listen, you know, I want to talk to you about the gospel. Um, Are you saved? Well, yes, I'm saved. I don't believe all that, but I believe I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah. So do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And the unbeliever says, of course I do not. But then the unbeliever looks at the Christian and says to the Christian, do you? Well, what's the Christian going to say? If he says yes, he's lying. And the unbeliever is going to say, you're lying, right? If you say yes, if you say no, you're very accurate. But then the unbeliever says, well, wait a minute. Why are you saying, oh, but that's not the whole story. Here's the rest of the story. In Christ, I've met that standard. What the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did by sending his son and the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us believe. Oh, I'm not running around trying to love the Lord their God with all my mind. I'm running around trying to walk in the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a second. I'm not, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. God is not expecting me to prove to Him that I love Him with all my heart, because I can't. And here's the beauty of grace. The beauty of grace is that it's progressive. None of us is the same person who was saved on the day that we were saved. If we're in the word of God, we're growing. But at any point, we can say, Lord, thank you for your work. And I know it's not done because I'm still confessing sins to you. But praise, praise God, praise you that, Lord Jesus, you've done the work. And in you, I am accepted in the beloved. The law was not given to save. It was not given to sanctify. It was not given to replace the promise. It was given to condemn. And, and the rest of Galatians talks about what it means to be led to Christ and be saved by him. Here's a statement that probably resonates with us all. Now, what keeps a believer at bay? What do you tell a believer? How does all this connect with me as a believer Trying to live for God. What? what? If a believer is relying on the spirit. if, If a believer is relying on behavior. For spiritual maturity. He or she will never ever mature as a believer. If a believer is relying on behavior. For spiritual maturity. He or she will never ever mature as a believer. Behavior only reflects who you are. It doesn't make you who you are. You can't change your insides by actions. But, but Roosevelt, where's that? How, how you, where'd you get that? The inner transformation, right? Listen to this. Romans 12:2, and Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. Peter said it this way, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. So really, the the rule, if you will, if you want one, Paul gives that rule in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the rule of the life of the believer. Because he says in verse 18 of Galatians 5, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Well, Roosevelt, what does that look like? Romans chapter 14 has a list of non-moral issues. Meaning, there's there's nothing sinful about the issue. The sin comes in the use of the issue. So meat sacrificed to idols. There's not a law that says you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And there's not a law that says you must eat meat sacrificed to idols. You are relying on the Holy Spirit. If you were in that time when that was an issue, you are relying on the Spirit of God to direct your actions. So Paul, what the Spirit of God said to Paul essentially is, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. There's no law that covers that. It's a very base life to live by rules. It's an incredible life to live in the Spirit and have the Spirit direct your actions. How do you piece out, like, how do you separate be angry but sin not? Only the Spirit of God can have you grow in that. So that's why when Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit, which the Spirit of God is producing in us as we are consuming the Word of God, Paul says, in the end, against these, there is no law. That's the Christian life. That's the joy of the Christian life. Looking inward by looking at actions brings deep conviction so that we could actually live a life consistently in false guilt, not feeling like we measure up. We all measure up in Christ. That's a fact. You can't measure up anymore. Now, we can grow and reflect Christ in the way in which the Lord works the heart through the word of God. So the law, oh, it's beautiful to study it because you start to see the purpose of God in everything. And you really come to appreciate the nature of grace when you recognize the condemnation that comes from actions.